Amen. I love hymns, but I have to admit, I love that song. I love, I love it because it's so different. I love stopping singing and just listening to the interplay. And I can't help but think that actually, although it may not exactly go with our Western ears influenced by all the influences in Western music, but if you read Revelation and the picture that John gives of heavenly worship, there's this one entity singing this one thing over and over again repetitively, then there's this thing chanting one thing over and over again repetitively, different from this and this thing, and he outlines all these different voices singing their own thing, and it's this cacophonous repetitive worship and I like to think it would sound rather like the middle of that song actually and I just love to sit back and listen to stuff like that I think that's what worship is like ah, thank you praise team John Mark for that <clears throat> I was just for free so we're continuing our uh, study through the book of Philippians today we're in Philippians chapter 3 uh, verses 8 through 11 before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Now, Father God, we do come before you with joy, proclaiming that you are holy. You are the King of kings. And Lord, we do want to glorify you with our lives. And we pray that you would, by your Word, change us. Make us obedient. Not because we're striving so hard to please you, but because you have saved us through Christ. Called us daughters and sons. Made us your own. And your word tells us that you rejoice over us. Now, Lord, would you help us to believe that? Show us Christ and his gospel in your word today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's good to be back. We did miss y'all last week. Uh, we were at a funeral for Nikki's grandmother. And so uh, funerals, as you can imagine, were kind of on my mind there for a little while. And the things that a minister is supposed to say at a funeral and... As I was thinking about these things, you know, funerals for a family can be very difficult because they expect you to say certain things, but there's also requirements. Like, I don't know if I can say that. And anyway, but death is where the rubber hits the road for Christianity. It really is what it's all about. I mean, if this short span of years that we've been given, if this is all we really have, if there's nothing after this life, Christianity is meaningless. There's no payout. Paul himself says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if there's no resurrection, Christians are to be pitied. That our faith is useless. He even goes so far to say that we have been deceived. After the funeral last week, a man came up to me afterwards and he said, I really appreciate your words. They were very comforting. And I thought to myself, how sad. Because it's not the words, it's the reality behind the words. It's the scripture pointing to the reality of what God has done for us in the resurrection of Christ. And that is right where Paul is today in this passage. Paul is looking ahead to his coming death. Remember, he's writing this from a jail cell on death row in Rome. And he's firming his resolve by reminding himself of the resurrection. And he also wants to anchor this Philippian church in the reality of the resurrection as well. <clears throat> so if you remember a couple weeks ago, the opening of chapter 3, Paul reminds us that if anyone tries to come and add something to the work of Christ, you know how it is, we've seen this, confess faith in Christ and wear a tie, don't drink, 
sing only hymns or sing only choruses or you know any of that junk that we Christians tend to add that destroys the gospel it's Christ alone or it's nothing Paul reminds them also we saw that if anyone could claim to stand on religious works and morality it was Paul himself he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees since he's a you know, writing to a Roman culture, a good way to think of it is he said he was Juicus Maximus, or we might say he was Captain Church. All of those things, he says, actually were worthless. They were not helping him get close to God. All of the religion that he valued was worthless. He now counts it as a loss or as a debt. And it's right at that idea that our text picks up today. So if you would, would you look with me? Philippians chapter 3. Verses 8 through 11, I'll be reading from the ESV version. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's Word. And so the question of this text today, what I want to think about and present before us is how can we be sure all this stuff is real? How can we have assurance of the main point of it all, resurrection from the dead? That's what Paul is getting at in this passage. So to help us remember that, I want to give you a theme sentence. Boys and girls, make sure you have your children's version. You can write this down in there. You also have your own translation. We're going to talk about it a little bit. And here's what I want you to remember about the sermon today. If we're part of Christ, we'll live like Christ and be raised like Christ. If we're part of Christ by faith, we'll be empowered to live by his resurrection so we can be sure of our resurrection. So let's jump in and see what Paul has to tell us here. First thing he tells us is we're part of Christ by faith. Remember, Paul was the guy. Paul was Juicus Maximus. Paul was captain church. And he looks at all that good religious upbringing he had, that good religious life, and he says it's worthless before him and understand this you'll you'll miss this passage his religious performance wasn't taken from him it's that he no longer put value in it it's not the picture that is kind of in your mind right now a good a good metaphor would be think of a sinking ship and in order to keep the ship from floundering they grab everything and just throw it overboard a box full of gold who cares we're gonna die throw it overboard all these jewels just the treasures thrown overboard and they're saving their lives but that stuff is still valuable and they regret it but they're glad to be alive that's not the picture you'll miss it if you have that picture in your mind it's a different picture this is you open up that well-worn, folded picture of the car. Girls, I know, I'm sorry, I couldn't think of something that was, that was you know, both genders. Okay, guys, you get this, right? The car, your dream car. It's the car. For me, 10 years ago, it was, you know, the Mercedes E55 A 
MG edition, which of course, as my wife lovely pointed out, you are in the wrong career to ever drive that, even if you could afford it, right? Like, I know, I know. Anyway, but you know, it's got the creases because you fold it up so many times, you look at it, you keep it in your pocket, so you're staring at that picture, you're walking down the road, and all of a sudden you look, there's the car. In the flesh, or the metal, whatever, it's right there, and there's an envelope on the hood with, with your name on it. And you look in the envelope, and there's the keys, and more importantly, there's the title, and even more importantly, there's the tax receipt, sales tax paid. <laughs> what happens to your beloved, well-creased picture? Boom, into the gutter, right? Because you got the real thing. That's garbage now. It has no value. It's meaningless. That's what Paul says. It's not, oh, I'm losing this thing of value because I have to. It's like, that is worthless. It's gone because I have the real thing. Once he understood the gospel, all of that morality he lived by, all of that good religious merit he earned, he actually says it's rubbish. It's garbage. It's actually, literally, in Greek, I didn't write it, don't get mad at me, it's actually poop. That's what he says. I'm serious, I will show you in the Greek how it's used. That's what he calls it. All of his religious works, he says, that's what it is. One ancient writer, if you don't believe me, writing about 150 years after this was written, he would probably know, says, it is something as if it would come out the back of a dog. That's a quote from an ancient pastor. That's what Paul said all his religious good works, all his good morality was worth because he saw Christ. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. He doesn't value his goodness anymore because of Christ. What is it that we love? What is it that we cherish? What is it that we value? What is our well-worn picture that we gaze, that takes our heart's affection, our mind's attention? What is that? And don't give yourself the churchy answer. No one in this room, myself included, maybe John Mark, he's more godly than I am, but no one else ever wakes up thinking every day, I want to gain Christ today. We think I want peace, I want happiness, I want rest, I want security, I want a good life, whatever that is. And then as good church-going folk, we add Christ to that desire, right? So it's, it's okay. Which is why we Christians are still petty and still stressed and still not joyful because we're seeking something else before Christ. Paul has none of that anymore. He sees something real and desirable. C.S. Lewis, thinking of this idea, says that we do things like that because our desires are actually too small. We don't desire enough. He, want, he makes this wonderful, famous metaphor. He says, we're like street urchins playing in mud pies in the back alley when at our disposal for free is a trip to the beach. But we like our mud pies, and so we're not interested in going to the beach because our desires are too small. See, Paul realized what was available to him in Christ, how awesome Christ is. He cast aside the mud pies of his religious works and his churchiness, and he embraced that beach vacation of Jesus Christ. Oh, you and I, as good church folk, we keep trying to get joy out of the stuff of church, typically. We take good things like friends, the community, the songs we like, certain traditions, and we do get a trickle of joy out of that stuff. Oh, but when we're united to Christ by faith and seeking to gain Him first, 
There's a fountain of joy available to us if we just would. Because, see, the gospel is offered to us by faith in Christ. Look with me at verse 9, what Paul says. He says, he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, don't miss this. Paul was righteous. He wasn't calling his sin garbage, rubbish, or the other word. He wasn't, that's not what he was saying. He's calling his goodness garbage. He's saying, I did the stuff. I jumped through the religious hoops. I did everything they told me to do. Everybody looked at me and said, yes, he is a good man. If anyone's going to heaven, it's him. And Paul says, that goodness was garbage. He's not casting off something that was evil. He's casting off something that's worthless to know God because that's not how you get to God. He's casting off his very churchiness, we would say, because that's where his hope was. Here's why that's important. Because in Southern culture, I'm from Mississippi, it's not that different from South Carolina. Christian is an adjective a lot of times, isn't it? Well, that just wasn't very Christian of me. Which is a really dumb way to use Christian, by the way, but that's a different issue. Because see, we have this kind of good common morality. And, And we put our hope in that good common morality. I've used this before, but it sums it up so well. A very famous radio preacher right around the end of World War II was asked the question in an interview, what would it look like if Satan ever came and took over a town? And his answer was, he said, the streets would be clean, there'd be hardly any crime, the town would be populated with the most upright, moral, decent people. The economy would be great. It would be a model town for other towns. And every Sunday, the churches would be packed and the gospel would never be heard. I bet some of you are thinking right now, um, I would take the Satan town, please. Because that's the thing our church values, right? Our church culture values those things so often more than we actually value Christ if we're very candid with ourselves. And Paul says, that was me. I valued those things. But when I saw Christ, when I really understood what it meant to gain Christ, I cast all that junk aside and said, that is worthless. Because only through Jesus Christ can I have a relationship with my creator, not through this stuff. See, being right with God is not based on our goodness or our morality. It's about the righteousness of Christ that comes to us by faith alone. I've used some pretty big concepts, so boys and girls, get out your children's bulletin. Let's look with me at your verses 8 and 9. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, I now look at everything from my churchy life as worthless because Jesus Christ is so great. I desire Jesus so much that I toss all other things away like garbage. I'm part of Christ now. Not because I was so churchy and followed the rules, but because God made me his own when I believed in Jesus as the Savior. See, boys and girls, that's the gospel. The Bible doesn't tell you, Jesus doesn't tell you, be good and obey your parents. And so you can go to heaven someday. That's not what the gospel is. 
Believe in Jesus because he makes you good. Don't be good to believe in Jesus. He helps you obey your parents because he loves you, but he doesn't say, obey your parents before you come to me. Jesus says, come to me. All that goodness we try to rack up doesn't impress God at all. See, when we believe the gospel, when, we're, when we believe that we are part of Christ, united to him by faith, not our works, we rejoice and we see Christ and we cast aside all this other stuff we put our hope in. We consider it worthless. Because if we're part of Christ, we'll live like Christ and be raised like Christ. So if we're part of Christ by faith, we're also empowered by Christ's resurrection. Paul looked for the power of God in his life through law-keeping, through being very religious, through being moral and upright, but now he's united to Christ by faith, and he sees God's power moving. Look with me at verse 10. He says what? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, being like him in his death. See, Paul wants to know Christ. Think about how an Old Testament expert like Paul, think about how, you know, Captain Jew Paul would use that word know. This is that Old Testament usage where it means a very intimate connection and relationship. Not just head knowledge. Paul wants to know Christ. Theologians call this the fancy term of union with Christ. And my fellow Americans, union with Christ is a collective thing. It's a group thing. It's not necessarily only an individual thing. Christ's people are united to him by faith. Righteousness comes to his church because he earned it for his people. And united to him by faith, we get that righteousness. And part of our intimate knowledge of Christ in that union is we get to tap into the power of his resurrection through experiencing what Christ experienced in his life. The main thing Christ experienced in his life, as I hope you've noticed it as we've gone through John, is, and Paul showed us in chapter 2, we saw about a month ago, the main thing Christ experienced in his life is opposition and suffering. That's why Paul says here he wants to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering. We've kind of lost that, haven't we, in the church today. But it's quickly returning as our culture becomes more and more post-Christian it's easy to remember that Christians are sufferers. The actual New Testament word for disciple actually means one who suffers with. That's what it means to be a disciple, to suffer alongside of. Your Lord suffered, dear Christian. And if you would know him, then you would know he was a man of sorrows. And if you were to follow him and be united to him, you too will know those sufferings. A dear Christian lady at a, a previous church I had the privilege of serving at was sick the entire time I knew her. And I remember during one pastoral visit, she just she looked at me and she said, you know, pastor, I've come to realize through all this that life really is just primarily pain interrupted by brief moments of happiness. Paul, writing from a jail cell, says, yeah, that's right. 
This life is pain for the Christian. This life is sorrow for the Christian. And followers of Christ are going to suffer. Now, right now, some of you are thinking, dude, that is like the worst sales pitch for Jesus ever. I know. But see, the sooner we get that we're supposed to suffer as Christians, the happier we'll be. Because Christ does not guarantee us health and wealth. He does not guarantee us peace and prosperity. And for so long, we have combined this American dream with Christianity. And so when our country struggles socially and economically, for some reason, we struggle with our faith. We start to doubt and wonder, what's God doing? But when we recognize that suffering is just kind of part of the gig, so to speak, for Christians, it doesn't surprise us, and it no longer makes us doubt. Instead, we have joy because, like, wow, I'm sharing in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. I must be united to Christ because I'm suffering like Jesus did. We are never more like Christ than when we suffer hardship and loss you know, the, the junk of a sinful world, and yet we hold on to the truth of God's promises, just like Christ did. That's what it looks like to be Christ-like. And the key to living in such intimacy with Christ and suffering is Christ's resurrection power, because Christianity is not easy. It's not easy. That's why Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's the force behind our new birth, the New Testament tells us. It's the power of our endurance. Another part of the Bible tells us Christianity is not easy and the power of the resurrection, the confirmation of Christ's victory over death, that is what powers our daily struggles. Okay, that's the theological truth. Here's what that actually looks like. We're facing a trial We're facing a hardship, a deep struggle, and we need God's help. We need God's power. And we're a church person, so we we, we work in these categories. The religious person, the captain church person, the old Paul person says, I better make sure God notices me so he'll help me out. So so I'll read my Bible for an hour in the morning, which is not a normal habit. I'll pray earnestly two, three times a day, which is usually not a normal habit. I'll clean up my language at work. I'll be a nicer parent. I'll be a nicer driver. I'll I'll do good so God will take notice of me and help me. My religious activity will tap me into God's power. That's Captain Church. That's old Paul. That's garbage. Because the gospel person, the person standing on the righteousness that comes by faith, in those struggles, in those trials, they usually already have a habit of reading God's word and prayer, and they don't start doing them more fervently to get God to notice them. Instead, they remind themselves of the truth they find in the word and in prayer. Because of Christ, I am fully accepted by God. Through faith, I am united to Christ, and I am now part of God's family. Not a hair can fall from my head without my heavenly Father say so. Lord, I believe this. Help my unbelief, because this trial is really hard. One person looks to their performance, and they just get stressed out and anxious. You probably know that person in their trials and struggles. The other person looks to Christ's performance. 
and they have joy in the midst of suffering and trials. Dear flock, in your trials, which person are you? Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 10. I don't want you to miss this. Here's what Paul is basically saying. I want to be close to my Savior and know the power that raised him from the grave. I want to suffer for the gospel as he did, and I want to honor God to the very end of my life just like Jesus did. See, boys and girls, what he's saying is that if you really are in Christ, if you know Jesus as your Savior, then you will want to be like Jesus in the good and the bad, not just when it's good. Because Christians are empowered by Christ's resurrection to be like Jesus. Because if we're part of Christ, we'll live like Christ and be raised like Christ. And so being part of Christ, being empowered by Christ's resurrection leads to us being assured of our resurrection. Verse 11 here is the main event. I mean, who would want to be part of a community that's specifically called to suffer? Well, if that community belongs to Christ, it's a good one to be part of, I think. And that as Christ was raised, the promises, so too will we be raised. That's Paul's confidence. Now, in English, verse 11, as it starts out, doesn't sound too confident, but it is in Greek. When he says, that by any means possible I may attain, he's not expressing doubt and hope as much as he's expressing reverence. The idea of resurrection here is, it's so incredible. It's so unbelievably amazing that Paul can barely speak its name. It's just too good to be true. It's the one day, someday hope of being glorified in Jesus Christ in a new world of experiencing no more pain, no more sin, no more suffering, and no more death ever. That hope is what Paul says is, Christ's resurrection guarantees for his people. And it's so good. Paul's like, that's, that's unbelievable. How do I get there? I want to get there. But when we think of the resurrection, we're so used to the language, but when we think of the, our resurrection, we should gasp and wonder, is it really true? I mean, it's one thing to say, isn't it? As we sometimes glibly say, I have eternal life through Jesus Christ. It feels like quite another thing to get specific and say, my body will die. Decay will take place. And if, if it takes long enough, my body will return to dust. But God will accept Christ's righteousness for me. And then my body will be raised and rebuilt in perfection. I will be resurrected in that state. I will live with God forever in a perfect world. That almost sounds fanatical, doesn't it? I mean, we put it that way. That almost sounds like I should say, and they all live happily ever after, right? Because it's too good to be true. See, do you believe that's true? Because that's where the rubber hits the road for Christianity. And the good news is that you can know. 
Paul presents the resurrection here as a destination we arrive at, not as something we earn. We know we're on the right path when we can look at ourselves and honestly evaluate ourselves as disciples and say, am I seeing Christ's resurrection power? Am I united to Christ? Because if those things are true, then I will get there. So let's honestly evaluate ourselves with some questions. A good question to ask yourself. Is my hope and faith in the work of Christ, not my own efforts? When the doubts come, when the fears come, does my mind immediately rest on the perfect work of Jesus Christ, or do I look at my performance before God? If you can say, I almost always go. Occasionally there's lapses, but I catch myself and go back to the work of Christ then you are living in the gospel and you are united to Christ by faith. If you can't really answer that question positively, say, you know, honestly, I, I, I tend to still default to thinking about my religious works or my morality or my goodness or I'm better than that person. You know, perhaps you are just a good person and you think your life would make you acceptable before God. You're resting on your own performance. And that's not good enough. And it's not giving you peace, is it? And it will not bring you into relationship with your creator. If that is you, if you are looking to your religious performance, if you're looking to your moral performance, if you're looking to just being a good old, I'm just a good average person. Even now, repent of that and place your faith and trust in Christ and his performance. Receive his righteousness and you can be made part of his family and death will not be your end. But there's another set of questions and this one kind of digs a little deeper at, at, at folk like us, churched folk, people who know the answers. Here's the questions we should ask ourselves. Do I want to know more of the Christ to whom I am united? Do I read my Bible because I want to, because that's how I know Christ? Do I find myself wanting to resist sin, even at the same time part of me really wants this sin, and occasionally, not as much as I would like, but occasionally I find this weird power coming from outside of me that helps me say no to temptation. And, and I... I'm closer to Christ because of it? Do I have joy and peace in the midst of all the junk of life? If you can answer those yes, then you are definitely united to Christ by faith. Hallelujah. And just as he was raised from the dead, you can have confidence that so too you will be raised as well. However, I'm guessing that these questions bothered some of you. Perhaps like so many good church goers, you can look back at some point of your life and say, yes, I confessed faith in Jesus Christ back then. And I meant it. But it has been a long time since you really wanted to know Christ. You don't regularly read the Bible, honestly, because you just don't want to. It's just not important. You go to Sunday school or to a, a Bible study during the week, not necessarily because you're hungry for the Word, but because your friends are there and you have good relationships. 
you haven't really experienced any sort of power over sin in your life, and you don't really think about it that much, actually. You're regular in your church attendance, but the rest of your week, there's kind of a pretty big disconnect from who you are on Sunday morning. As your pastor, I must lovingly disturb your calm. If you can go weeks without reading God's Word, and you don't miss it, and you don't feel something's just not right, you have no reason to assume you are actually united to Christ by faith. If you examine your life and there is little joy, little peace, especially in trials, in fact, if you would be candid, you would say, you know, I'm just as angry and stressed and petty and gossipy and irritable as everybody else around me who I know doesn't know Christ. You have no basis to assume you are united to Christ by faith. Dear flock, if we have no resurrection power showing in our life, we have no reason to think there'll be resurrection power in our death. But hear me, my dear, precious, churchy people, my good, upstanding, moral people, Christ was crucified for your sins. He was resurrected for your life, and he is ready and able to save you. Repent of placing your faith and your trust in your churchiness. Admit that you do that, and then say, I'm sorry, God, it's like my default. Will you help me? And he will. And place your faith and trust in the work of Christ. And this is something you'll have to do repeatedly. I would say daily, but it's even more than that. It's minutely. You're going to say, why am I, I, I keep trusting in myself. Lord, help me to trust in Christ. I'm sorry. Lord, help me to trust in Christ. I'm sorry. Look to Christ's goodness on your behalf. Quit looking to your own. And if that is you, if you've been around church for a long time, if you know you've placed your faith in Christ back then, but you have to admit, I don't really know much today of anything intimate with Christ, you can do this right now. You can repent right now in this moment and place your faith yet again in Christ. Don't wait. Let's pray together. Father God, Lord, we admit we can grow cold and our relationship can grow stale. Oh Lord, we admit that part of our heart likes to look at some words we said back then and place our hope there instead of looking at what you're doing in us today. Lord, we want to believe. Would you help our unbelief? Lord, I ask that you would right now, I pray, Lord, for those who know you, those who have been in church for a very long time, who know the answers, but Lord, are not pursuing you, are not really gaining you, that objectively looking at their life, we, we would have a hard time saying, yes, you are united to Christ by faith. Lord, I pray that even now you would help them to feel the weight and the burden of their sin. I pray, Lord, that you would take their breath away with their guilt before you. And then I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of their heart and show them Jesus Christ crucified for their sins, raised for their life. And I pray that you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Lord, would you draw your people in this moment 
to confess faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's you right now. It's not some big fancy prayer. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to know you better. Would you help me to believe yet again in Jesus Christ? And if you did that, go talk to your elder or a friend or to me or to John Mark. And we want to walk with you on this path. Lord, we thank you that you are alive and active and you are doing your work. Would you do your work of redemption yet again this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please?